Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Part 2 of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. July under the lee of the Diamond Mountain was a month of blanket nights and of warm, glowing days. John and Kismine were in love. He did not know that the little gold football, inscribed with the legend Prodeo et Patria et St. Midas, which he had given her, rested on a platinum chain next to her bosom. But it did. And she, for her part, was not aware that a large sapphire, which had dropped one day from her simple coiffure, was stowed away tenderly in John's jewel box. Late one afternoon, when the ruby and ermine music room was quiet, they spent an hour there together. He held her hand, and she gave him such a look that he whispered her name aloud. She bent toward him, then hesitated. Did you say Kismine? she asked softly. Or she had wanted to be sure. She thought she might have misunderstood. Neither of them had ever kissed before, but in the course of an hour it seemed to make little difference. The afternoon drifted away. That night, when a last breath of music drifted down from the highest tower, they each lay awake, happily dreaming over the separate minutes of the day. They had decided to be married as soon as possible. Every day, Mr. Washington and the two young men went hunting or fishing in the deep forests or played golf around the somnolent course, games which John diplomatically allowed his host to win or swam in the mountain coolness of the lake. John found Mr. Washington a somewhat exacting personality, utterly uninterested in any ideas or opinions except his own. Mrs. Washington was aloof and reserved at all times. She was apparently indifferent to her two daughters, and entirely absorbed in her son Percy, with whom she held interminable conversations in rapid Spanish at dinner. Jasmine, the eldest daughter, resembled Kismine in appearance, except that she was somewhat bow-legged and terminated in large hands and feet, but was utterly unlike her in temperament. Her favorite books had to do with poor girls who kept house for widowed fathers. John learned from Kismine that Jasmine had never recovered from the shock and disappointment caused her by the termination of the World War, just as she was about to start for Europe as a canteen expert. She had even pined away for a time, and Braddock Washington had taken steps to promote a new war in the Balkans, but she had seen a photograph of some wounded Serbian soldiers and lost interest in the whole proceedings. But Percy and Kismine seemed to have inherited the arrogant attitude in all its harsh magnificence from their father. A chaste and consistent selfishness ran like a pattern through their every idea. John was enchanted by the wonders of the chateau in the valley. Braddock Washington, so Percy told him, had caused to be kidnapped a landscape gardener, an architect, a designer of state settings, and a French decadent poet left over from the last century. 
He had put his entire force of Negroes at their disposal, guaranteed to supply them with any materials that the world could offer, and left them to work out some ideas of their own. But one by one they had shown their uselessness. The decadent poet had at once begun bewailing his separation from the boulevards in spring. He made some vague remarks about spices, apes, and ivories, but said nothing that was of any practical value. The stage designer, on his part, wanted to make the whole valley a series of tricks and sensational effects, a state of things that the Washingtons would soon have grown tired of. And as for the architect and the landscape gardener, they thought only in terms of convention. They must make this like this and that like that. But they had at least solved the problem of what was to be done with them. They all went mad early one morning after spending the night in a single room trying to agree upon the location of a fountain and were now confined comfortably in an insane asylum in Westport, Connecticut. But, inquired John curiously, who did plan all your wonderful reception rooms and halls and approaches and bathrooms well, answered Percy, I blush to tell you, but it was a moving picture fella. He was the only man we found who was used to playing with an unlimited amount of money, though he did tuck his napkin to his collar and couldn't read or write. As August drew to a close, John began to regret that he must soon go back to school. He and Kismine had decided to cope the following June. It would be nicer to be married here, Kismine confessed. "'But, of course, I could never get father's permission to marry you at all. "'Next to that, I'd rather elope. "'It's terrible for wealthy people to be married in America at present. "'They always have to send out bulletins to the press "'saying that they're going to be married in remnants "'when what they mean is just a peck of old second-hand pearls "'and some used lace worn by the Empress of Eugenie.' "'I, I know,' agreed John fervently. When I was visiting the Schnitzler Murphys, the eldest daughter, Gwendolyn, married a man whose father owns half of West Virginia. She wrote home, saying what a tough struggle she was carrying on, on his salary as a bank clerk, and, and then she ended up by saying that, thank God, I have four good maids anyhow, and that helps a little. It's absurd, commented Kismine. Think of the millions and millions of people in the world, laborers and all, who get along with only two maids. One afternoon, late in August, a chance remark of Kismine's changed the face of the entire situation and threw John into a state of terror. They were in their favorite grove, and between kisses, John was indulging in some romantic forebodings which he fancied added poignancy to their relations. "'Sometimes I think we'll never marry,' he said sadly. "'You're too wealthy, too magnificent.' No one as rich as you can be like other girls. I should marry the daughter of some well-to-do wholesale hardware man from Omaha or Sioux City and be content with her half a million. I knew the daughter of a wholesale hardware man once, remarked Kismine. I don't think you'd have been contented with her. She was a friend of my sister's. She visited here. Oh, then you've had other guests, exclaimed John in surprise. Kismine seemed to regret her words. Oh, yes she said hurriedly. We've had a few. But aren't you... Wasn't your father afraid they'd talk outside? Oh, to some extent, to some extent, she answered. Let's talk about something pleasanter. John's curiosity was aroused. Something pleasanter, he demanded. What's unpleasant about that? Weren't they nice girls? To his great surprise, Kismine began to weep. Yes, that, that's the... That's the whole trouble. 
I grew quite, quite attached to some of them. So did Jasmine, but she kept in, inviting them anyway. I couldn't understand it. A dark suspicion was born in John's heart. Do you mean that they, they told, and your father had them removed? Worse than that, she muttered brokenly. Father took no chances, and Jasmine kept writing them to come, and they had such a good time. She was overcome by a paroxysm of grief. Stunned with the horror of his revelation, John sat there open-mouthed, feeling the nerves of his body twitter like so many sparrows perched upon his spinal column. Now I've told you, and I shouldn't have, she said, calmly, suddenly, and drying her dark blue eyes. Do you mean to say that your father had them murdered before they left? She nodded. In August, usually, or in early September, it's only natural for us to get all the pleasure out of them that we can first. How abominable! How, why, I must be going crazy. D did you really admit that I did? Interrupted Kismine, shrugging her shoulders. We can't very well imprison them like those aviators, where they'd be a continual reproach to us every day. And it's always been easier for Jasmine and me because Father had done it sooner than we expected. In that way, we avoided any farewell scene. So, so you murdered them? Ah! cried John. It was done very nicely. They were drugged while they were asleep, and their families were always told they died of a scarlet fever in Butte. But I... I failed to understand why you kept on inviting them. I didn't, burst out Kismine. I never invited one. Jasmine did. And they always had a very good time. She'd, she'd give them the nicest presents toward the last. I shall probably have visitors too. I'll harden up to it. We can't let such an inevitable thing as death stand in the way of enjoying life while we have it. Think how lonesome it would be out here if we never had anyone. Why, father and mother have sacrificed some of their best friends, just as we have. And, and so, cried John accusingly, and so you were letting me make love to you and pretending to return it and talking about marriage all the time, knowing perfectly well that I'd never get out of here alive? No, she protested passionately. Not anymore. I, I, I did it first. You, you were here. I couldn't help that. And I thought your last days might as well be pleasant for both of us. But then I fell in love with you. And I'm honestly sorry you're going to, going to be put away. Though I'd rather you be put away than ever kiss another girl. Oh, you would, would you? cried John ferociously. Much rather. Besides, I've always heard that a girl can have more fun with a man whom she knows she can never marry. Oh, why did I tell you? I probably spoiled your whole good time now, and we were really enjoying things while you didn't know it. I knew it would make things sort of depressing for you. Oh, you did, did you? John's voice trembled with anger. I've heard about enough of this. If you haven't any more pride and decency than to have an affair with a fellow that you know isn't much better than a corpse, I don't want to have any more to do with you. You're not a corpse, she protested in horror. You're not a corpse. I won't have you saying that I kissed a corpse. I said nothing of the sort. You did. You said I kissed a corpse. I didn't. Their voices had risen, but upon a sudden interruption, they both subsided into immediate silence. Footsteps were coming along the path in their direction, and a moment later the rose bushes were parted, displaying Braddock Washington, whose intelligent eyes, set in his good-looking, vacuous face, were peering in at them. "'Who kissed the corpse?' he demanded in obvious disapproval. 
Nobody, answered Kismin quickly. We were just joking. What are you two doing here, anyhow? He demanded gruffly. Kismin, you ought to be, to be reading or playing golf with your sister. Go read. Go play golf. Don't let me find you here when I come back. Then he bowed at John and went up the path. See, said Kismin crossly when he was out of hearing. You spoiled it all. We can never meet any more. He won't let me meet you. He'd have you poisoned if he thought you were in love with me. I'm not any more, cried John fiercely. So he can set his mind at rest upon that. Moreover, don't fool yourself that I'm going to stay around here. Inside of six hours, I'll be over those mountains if I have to gnaw a passage through them and on my way to the east. They had both got to their feet, and at this remark, Kismin came close and put her arm through his. I'm going, too. You must be crazy. Of course I'm going, she interrupted impatiently. You most certainly are not. You very well, she said quietly. We'll catch up with Father now and talk it over with him. Defeated. John mustered a sickly smile. Very well, dearest, he agreed, with pale and unconvincing affection. We'll go together. His love for her returned and settled placidly on his heart. She was his. She would go with him to share his dangers. He put his arms about her and kissed her fervently. After all, she loved him. She had saved him, in fact. Discussing the matter, they walked slowly back toward the chateau. They decided that since Braddock Washington had seen them together, they had best depart the next night. Nevertheless, John's lips were unusually dry at dinner, and he nervously emptied a great spoonful of peacock soup into his left lung. He had to be curried into the turquoise and sable card room and pounded on the back by one of the underbutlers, which Percy considered a great joke. Long after midnight, John's body gave a nervous jerk, and he suddenly sat upright, staring into the veils of somnolence that draped the room. Through the squares of blue darkness that were his open windows, he had heard a faint, faraway sound that died upon the bed of a wind before identifying itself on his memory, clouded with uneasy dreams. But the sharp noise that had succeeded it was near, was just outside the room, the click of a turned knob, a footstep, a whisper, he could not tell. A hard lump gathered in the pit of his stomach, and his whole body ached in the moment that he strained agonizingly to hear. Then one of the veils seemed to dissolve, and he saw a vague figure standing by the door, a figure only faintly limbed and blocked in upon the darkness, mingled so with the folds of the drapery as to seem distorted, like a reflection seen in a dirty pane of glass. With a sudden movement of fright or resolution, John pressed the button by his bedside, and the next moment he was sitting in the green sunken bath of the adjoining room, waked into alertness by the shock of the cold water which half filled it. He sprung out in his wet pajamas, scattering a heavy trickle of water behind him, ran from the aquamarine door which he knew led out into the ivory landing of the second floor. The door opened noiselessly. A single crimson lamp, burning in a great dome above, lit the magnificent sweep of the carved stairways with a poignant beauty. For a moment, John hesitated, appalled by the silent splendor massed about him, seeming to envelop its gigantic folds and contours, the solitary, drenched little figure shivering upon the 
ivory landing. Then, simultaneously, two things happened. The door of his own sitting room swung open, precipitating three naked negroes into the hall, and as John swayed in wild terror toward the stairway, another door slid back in the wall on the other side of the corridor, and John saw Braddock Washington standing in the lighted lift, wearing a fur coat and a pair of riding boots which reached to his knees and displayed above the glow of his rose-colored pajamas. On the instant, the three Negroes, John had never seen any of them before, and it flashed through his mind that they must be the professional executioners, paused in their movement toward John, and turned expectantly to the man in the lift, who burst out with an imperious command, Get in here! All three of you, quick as hell! Then, within the instant, the three Negroes darted into the cage. The oblong of light was blotted out as the lift door slid shut, and John was again alone in the hall. He slumped weakly down against an ivory stair. It was apparent that something portentous had occurred, something which, for the moment at least, had postponed his own petty disaster. What was it? Had the Negroes risen in revolt? Had the aviators forced aside the iron bars of the grating? Or had the men of fish stumbled blindly through the hills and gazed with bleak, joyless eyes upon the gaudy valley? John did not know. He heard a faint whir of air as the lift whizzed up again, and then a moment later as it descended, it was probable that Percy was hurrying to his father's assistance, and it occurred to John that this was his opportunity to join Kismin and plan an immediate escape. He waited until the lift had been silent for several minutes, shivering a little with the night cool that whipped in through his wet pajamas. He returned to his room and dressed himself quickly. Then he mounted a long flight of stairs and turned down the corridor carpeted with Russian sable, which led to Kismin's suite. The door of her sitting room was open, and the lamps were lighted. Kismin in an angora kimono stood near the window of the room in a listening attitude, and as John entered noiselessly, she turned toward him. Oh, it's you, she whispered crossing the room to him. Did you hear them? Uh, I heard your father's slaves in my... No, she interrupted excitedly. Airplanes. Airplanes? Perhaps that was the sound that woke me. There's at least a dozen. I saw one a few moments ago dead against the moon. The guard back by the cliff fired his rifle, and that's what roused father. We're going to open on them right away. Are they here on purpose? Yes, it's that Italian who got away. Simultaneously, with her last word, a succession of sharp crackles tumbled in through the open window. Kismin uttered a little cry, took a penny with fumbling fingers from a box on her dresser, and ran to one of the electric lights. In an instant, the entire chateau was in darkness. She had blown out the fuse. Come on, she cried to him. We'll go up to the roof garden and watch it from there. Drawing a cape about her, she took his hand, and they found their way out the door. It was only a step to the tower lift, and as she pressed the button that shot them upward, he put his arms around her in the darkness and kissed her mouth. Romance had come to John Unger at last. A minute later, they stepped out upon the star-white platform, above, under the misty moon, sliding in and out of the patches of cloud that eddied below it, floated a dozen dark-winged bodies in constant circling course, from here and there in the valley, flashes of fire leaped toward them, followed by sharp detonations. Kismin clapped her hands with pleasure, which a moment later turned to dismay as the airplanes at some prearranged signal began to release their bombs and the whole of the valley became a panorama of deep reverberate sound and lurid light. Before long, the aim of the attackers became concentrated upon the points where the anti-aircraft guns were situated, and one of them was almost immediately reduced to a giant cinder to lie smoldering in a park of rose bushes. 
Kismine, begged John. You'll be glad when I tell you that this attack came on the eve of my murder. If I hadn't heard that guard shoot off his gun back by the pass, I should now be stone dead. I can't hear you, cried Kismine, intent on the scene before. You'll have to talk louder. I simply said, John shouted, that we'd better get out before they begin to shell the chateau. Suddenly, the whole portico of the Negro quarters cracked asunder. A geyser of flame shot up from under the colonnades, and great fragments of the jagged marble were hurled as far as the borders of the lake. There go fifty thousand dollars worth of slaves, cried Kismine, at pre-war prices. So few Americans have any respect for property. John renewed his efforts to compel her to leave. The aim of the aeroplanes was becoming more precise minute by minute, and only two of the anti-aircraft guns were still retaliating. It was obvious that the garrison, encircled with fire, could not hold out much longer. Come on, John cried, pulling Kismine's arm. We've got to go. Do you realize that those aviators will kill you without question if they find you? She consented reluctantly. We'll have to wake Jasmine, she said, as they hurried toward the lift. Then she added in a sort of childish delight, We'll be poor, won't we? Like people in books. And I'll be an orphan and utterly free. Free and poor. What fun! She stopped and raised her lips to him in a delighted kiss. It's impossible to be both together, said John grimly. People have found that out, and I should choose to be free as preferable of the two. As an extra caution, you'd better dump the contents of your jewel box into your pockets. Ten minutes later, the two girls met John in the dark corridor, and they descended to the main floor of the chateau. Passing for the last time through the magnificence of the splendid halls, they stood for a moment out on the terrace, watching the burning negro quarters and the flaming embers of two planes which had fallen on the other side of the lake. A solitary gun was still keeping up a sturdy popping, and the attackers seemed timorous about descending lower, but sent their thunderous fireworks in a circle around it until any chance shot might annihilate its Ethiopian crew. John and the two sisters passed down the marble steps, turned sharply to the left, and began to ascend a narrow path that wound like a garter about the diamond mountain. Kismine knew a heavily wooded spot halfway up where they could lie concealed and yet able to observe the wild night in the valley, finally to make an escape when it should be necessary along a secret path laid in a rocky gully. It was three o'clock when they attained their destination. The obliging and phlegmatic Jasmine fell off to sleep immediately, leaning against the trunk of a large tree, while John and Kismine sat, his arm around her, and watched the desperate ebb and flow of the dying battle among the ruins of a vista that had been a garden spot that morning. Shortly after four o'clock, the last remaining gun gave out a clanging sound and went out of action in a swift tongue of red smoke. Though the moon was down, they saw that the flying bodies were circling closer to the earth. When the planes had made certain that the beleaguered possessed no further resources, they would land in the dark and glittering rain of the Washingtons would be over. With the cessation of the firing, the valley grew quiet. The embers of the two aeroplanes glowed like the eyes of some monster crouching in the grass. The chateau stood dark and silent beautiful without light as it had been beautiful in the sun, while the woody rattles of Nemesis filled the air above with a growing and receding complaint. Then John perceived that Kismine, like her sister, had fallen sound asleep. It was long after four when he became aware of footsteps along the path they had lately followed, and he waited in breathless silence until the persons to whom they belonged had passed the vantage point he occupied. 
There was a faint stir in the air now that was not of human origin, and the dew was cold. He knew that the dawn would break soon. John waited until the steps had gone a safe distance up the mountain and were inaudible. Then he followed. About halfway to the steep summit, the trees fell away, and a hard saddle of rock spread itself over the diamond beneath. Just before he reached this point, he slowed down his pace, warned by an animal sense that there was life just ahead of him. Coming to a high boulder, he lifted his head gradually above its edge. His curiosity was rewarded. This is what he saw. Braddock Washington was standing there, motionless, silhouetted against the gray sky without sound or sign of life. As the dawn came up out of the east, lending a cold green color to the earth, it brought the solitary figure into insignificant contrast with the new day. While John watched, his host remained for a few moments absorbed in some inscrutable contemplation. Then he signaled to the two Negroes who crouched at his feet to lift the burden which lay between them. As they struggled upright, the first yellow beam of the sun struck through the innumerable prisms of an immense and exquisitely chiseled diamond, and a white radiance was kindled that glowed upon the air like a fragment of the morning star. The bearers staggered beneath its weight for a moment, then their rippling muscles caught and hardened under the wet shine of the skins, and the three figures were again motionless in their defiant impotency before the heavens. After a while, the white man lifted his head and slowly raised his arms in a gesture of attention, as one who would call a great crowd to hear. But there was no crowd. Only the vast silence of the mountain and the sky, broken by faint bird voices down among the trees. The figure on the saddle of rock began to speak ponderously and with an inextinguishable pride. You out there, he cried in a trembling voice. You there, he paused his arms still uplifted, his head held attentively as though he were expecting an answer. See whether there might be men coming down the mountain, but the mountain was bare of human life. There was only sky and a mocking flute of wind along the treetops. Could Washington be praying? For a moment, John wondered. Then the illusion passed. There was something in the man's whole attitude antithetical to prayer. Oh, you above there! The voice was become strong and confident. This was no forlorn supplication. If anything, there was in it a quality of monstrous condescension. You there! Words too quickly uttered to be understood, flowing one into the other. John listened breathlessly, catching a phrase here and there, while the voice broke off, resumed, broke off again, now strong and argumentative, now colored with a slow, puzzled impatience. Then a conviction commenced to dawn on the single listener, and as realization crept over him, a spray of quick blood rushed through his arteries. Braddock Washington was offering a bribe to God. That was it. There was no doubt. The diamond in the arms of his slaves was some advanced sample, a promise of more to follow. 
That, John perceived after a time, was the thread running through his sentences. Prometheus enriched was calling to witness forgotten sacrifices, forgotten rituals, prayers obsolete before the birth of Christ. For a while, his discourse took the form of reminding God of this gift or that which divinity had deigned to accept from men, great churches if he would rescue cities from the plague, gifts of myrrh and gold, of human lives, and beautiful women and captive armies, of children and queens, of beasts of the forest and field, sheep and goats, harvests and cities, whole conquered lands that had been offered up in lust or blood for his appeal, buying a mead's worth of alleviation from the divine wrath and now he braddock washington emperor of diamonds king and priest of the age of gold arbiter and splendor and luxury would offer up a treasure such as princes before him had never dreamed of offer it up in suppliance but in pride he would give to god he continued getting down to specifications, the greatest diamond in the world. This diamond would be cut with many more thousand facets than there were leaves on a tree, and yet the whole diamond would be shaped with the perfection of a stone no bigger than a fly. Many men would work upon it for many years. It would be set in a great dome of beaten gold, wonderfully carved and equipped with gates of opal and crusted sapphire. In the middle would be hollowed out a chapel presided over by an altar of iridescent, decomposing, ever-changing radium, which would burn out the eyes of any worshiper who lifted up his head from prayer. And on this altar, there would be slain for the amusement of the divine benefactor any victim he should choose, even though it should be the greatest and most powerful man alive. In return... He asked only a simple thing, a thing that for God would be absurdly easy, only that matters should be as they were yesterday at this hour, and that they should remain so. So very simple. Let but the heavens open, swallowing these men in their airplanes, and then close again. Let him have his slaves once more, restored to life and well. There was no one else with whom he had ever needed to treat or bargain. He doubted only whether he had made his bribe big enough. God had his pride, of course. God was made in man's image, so it had been said. He must have his price. And the price would be rare. No cathedral whose building consumed many years, no pyramid constructed by 10,000 workmen would be like this cathedral, this pyramid. He paused here. That was his proposition. Everything would be up to specifications, and there was nothing vulgar in his assertion that it would be cheap at the price. He implied that providence could take it or leave it. As he approached the end, his sentences became broken, became short and uncertain, and his body seemed tense, seemed strained to catch the slightest pressure or whisper of life in the spaces around him. His hair had turned gradually white as he talked, and now he lifted his head high to the heavens like a prophet of old, magnificently mad. 
Then, as John stared in giddy fascination, it seemed to him that a curious phenomenon took place somewhere around him. It was as though the sky had darkened for an instant, as though there had been a sudden murmur and a gust of wind, a sound of faraway trumpets, a sighing like the rustle of a great silken robe. For a time, the whole of nature round about partook of this darkness. The bird song ceased. The trees were still. And far over the mountain, there was a mutter of dull and menacing thunder. That was all. The wind died along the tall grasses of the valley. The dawn and the day resumed their place and time. And the risen sun sent hot waves of yellow mist that made its path bright before it. The leaves laughed in the sun and their laughter shook the trees until each bough was like a girl's school in fairyland. God had refused to accept the bribe. For another moment, John watched the triumph of the day. Then, turning, he saw a flutter of brown down by the lake, then another flutter, then another, like the dance of golden angels alighting from the clouds. The aeroplanes had come to earth. John slid off the boulder and ran down the side of the mountain to the clump of trees where the two girls were awake and waiting for him. Kismine sprang to her feet, the jewels in her pockets jingling, a question on her parted lips. But instinct told John that there was no time for words. They must get off the mountain without losing a moment. He seized a hand of each and in silence they threaded the tree trunks, washed with light now and with the rising mist. Behind them from the valley came no sound at all except the complaint of the peacocks far away and the pleasant undertone of morning. When they had gone about half a mile, they avoided the parkland and entered a narrow path that led over the next rise of ground. At the highest point of this, they paused and turned around. Their eyes rested upon the mountainside they had just left, oppressed by some dark sense of tragic impendency. Clear against the sky, a broken, white-haired man was slowly descending the steep slope, followed by two gigantic and emotionless negroes who carried a burden between them, which still flashed and glittered in the sun. Halfway down, two other figures joined them. John could see that they were Mrs. Washington and her son, upon whose arm she leaned. The aviators had clambered from their machines to the sweeping lawn in front of the chateau, and with rifles in hand were starting up the Diamond Mountain in skirmishing formation. But the little group of five, which had formed farther up and was engrossing all the watchers' attention, had stopped upon a ledge of rock. The negroes stooped and pulled up what appeared to be a trap door in the side of the mountain. Into this they all disappeared, the white-haired man first, then his wife and son, finally the two negroes, the glittering tips of whose jeweled headdresses caught the sun for a moment before the trap door descended and engulfed them all. Kismine clutched John's arm. Oh, she cried wildly, where are they going? What are they going to do? It must be some underground way of escape. A little scream from the two girls interrupted his sentence. "'Don't you see?' sobbed Kismine hysterically. "'The mountain is wired!' 
Even as she spoke, John put up his hands to shield his sight. Before their eyes, the whole surface of the mountain had changed suddenly to a dazzling, burning yellow, which showed up through the jacket of turf as light shows through a human hand. For a moment, the intolerable glow continued, and then, like an extinguished filament, it disappeared, revealing a black waste from which blue smoke arose slowly, carrying off with it what remained of vegetation and of human flesh. Of the aviators, there was left neither blood nor bone. They were consumed as completely as the five souls who had gone inside. Simultaneously and with an immense concussion, the chateau literally threw itself into the air, bursting into flaming fragments as it rose, and then tumbling back upon itself in a smoking pile that lay projecting half into the water of the lake. There was no fire. What smoke there was drifted off, mingling through the sunshine, and for a few minutes longer, a powdery dust of marble drifted from the great featureless pile that had once been the house of jewels. There was no more sound, and the three people were alone in the valley. At sunset, John and his two companions reached the high cliff which had marked the boundaries of the Washington's dominion, and looking back, found the valley tranquil and lovely in the dusk. They sat down to finish the food which Jasmine had brought with her in a basket, there, she said, as she spread the tablecloth and put the sandwiches in a neat pile upon it. Don't they look tempting? I always think that food tastes better outdoors. With that remark, remarked Kismine, Jasmine enters the middle class. Now, said John eagerly, turn out your pocket and let's see what jewels you brought along. If you made a good selection, we three ought to live comfortably all the rest of our lives. Obediently, Kismine put her hand in her pocket and tossed two handfuls of glittering stones before him. Not so bad, cried John enthusiastically. They aren't very big, but hello. His expression changed as he held one of them up to the declining sun. Why, well, these aren't diamonds. There's something the matter. By golly, exclaimed Kismine with a startled look. What an idiot I am. What, these are rhinestones, cried John. I know, she broke into a laugh. I opened the wrong drawer. They belonged on the dress of a girl who visited Jasmine. I got her to give them to me in exchange for diamonds. I'd never seen anything but precious stones before. And this is what you brought? I'm afraid so, she fingered the brilliance wistfully. I think I like these better. I'm a little tired of diamonds. Very well, said John gloomily. We'll have to live in Hades, and you will grow old telling incredulous women that you got the wrong drawer. Unfortunately, your father's bank books were consumed with him. Well, what's the matter with Hades? If I come home with a wife at my age, my father's just as liable as to cut me off with a hot coal, as they say down there. Jasmine spoke up. I love washing, she said quietly. I have always washed my own handkerchiefs. I'll take in laundry and support you both. Do they have washwomen in Hades? asked Kismine innocently. Of course, answered John. It's just like anywhere else. I thought uh, perhaps it was too hot to wear any clothes, John laughed. Just try it, he suggested. They'll run you out before you're half started. Will father be there? she asked. John turned to her in astonishment. 
Your father is dead, he replied somberly. Why should he go to Hades? You have it confused with another place that was abolished long ago. After supper, they folded up the tablecloth and spread their blankets for the night. What a dream it was, Kismine sighed, gazing at the stars. How strange it seems to be here with one dress and a penniless fiancé. Under the stars, she repeated. I never noticed the stars before. I always thought of them as great big diamonds that belonged to someone. Now they frighten me. They make me feel like it was all a dream, all my youth. It was a dream, said John quietly. Everybody's youth is a dream, a form of chemical madness. How pleasant, then, to be insane. So I'm told, said John gloomily. I don't know any longer. At any rate, let us love for a while, for a year or so, you and me. That's a form of divine drunkenness that we can all try. There are only diamonds in the whole world, diamonds and perhaps the shabby gift of disillusion. Well, I have that last, and I will make the usual nothing of it, he shivered. Turn up your coat collar, little girl. The night's full of chill, and you'll get pneumonia. His was a great sin who first invented consciousness. Let us lose it for a few hours. So, wrapping himself in his blanket, he fell off to sleep. This ends the reading of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Diamond As Big As The Ritz. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe and your sweet sweet grandmother old grandmother Eunice Eunice should definitely subscribe until next time may you live well think well and love well Godspeed <laughs>